This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Again, but prayer is prayer is more than just one beam. You know, it's not like we're just looking around and we're like, here's this specific prayer beam, and we put it in the prayer post hole. Like prayer to stretch this metaphor, prayer is more like we're plugging back into the mains and switching on the electricity. And obviously, we have been plugging into the mains. We kept the rhythms of prayer during this time. Uh, but what I really want to talk about, so you know, I know, I guess why am I saying this? Because I know that people know what prayer is. Most of you will know that, you'll have some experience with it. So, you know, I guess like what I'm saying is keep your heart soft to the message on prayer in this particular season as we look to rebuild it as a rhythm. Good, yeah. uh, So, what I'm going to do, I'm going to read Nehemiah 1 to us, uh, and then I'm going to draw out from that uh, two things uh, as headlines. Uh, one is, is where that story in Nehemiah 1 challenges, challenges us and convicts us to rebuild prayer, and the other one is where it convinces us. Uh, that it's the right thing for this season. So Nehemiah 1, starting from verse 1 and going all the way through uh, to the end. Uh, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hathaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, so he's talking here about Ezra and Zerubbabel who have already gone back, and concerning Jerusalem, that rebuild project they started, and they said to me of the remnant, they said, the remnant there in Jerusalem, in the province who survived the exile, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, with those who love and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive, let your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, though, God, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts from the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to hear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And then slightly out of place, now I was cut to the king. 
<laughs> so Lord, we, um, we love your servant uh, Nehemiah and we're so glad to, to uh, be able to dwell in, in what it is that happened in his story. But actually his story is part of your story over history and your story is still going on and we're in it now. And Lord, please teach us from parts of, of his part of your story what it is that you've got for our part of your story now as we look to, to return and rebuild patterns of prayer together as a church, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, how does Nehemiah uh, challenge us and convict us to pray? Well, we're going to focus in on uh, the first section, the preamble before we pray, verses 1 to 4, uh, to reflect on this. Now, uh, first of all, it's worth noting, Nehemiah is moved to pray by a bad situation. He gets uh, testing news and that forces him to pray or pushes him into prayer. And I, what I love about the Bible is how the, the, the way it relates to humanity is something that we can really relate to. Oh, that is what humanity is like, which for me really stirs me in terms of faith for how relevant it is to us today. Because who can't relate to this? Who can't relate to that idea of like, oh, a bad situation driving us to prayer or to God? I think Christians and non-Christians alike can relate to that. If you've got hard times or purpose or testing times, it moves us to prayer. Do you need a building? Pray. Is there a difficult meeting coming up? Pray. Are you about to undergo surgery? Pray for it. And I think that's okay. You know, I think it's okay that that drives us to prayer and drives us to God. People, um, people often feel guilty, I think, when they say, oh, I've had this hard time recently, but it has, it has driven me at least to the Lord. And sometimes people tell you that in almost a guilty way because they think it shines a light on how maybe they pray more when stuff is difficult. Thereby, extension, maybe they think it, it makes it clear how maybe they don't pray as much as they think that they should when things are going well. And then, you know, should we pray when things are going well? Clearly, we're called to pray in all circumstances. But I do think it's okay that difficult times, testing times, purpose drives us into prayer. And the reason I think that's okay is because praying when you perceive that something is bad or tough or purposeful, when you've got a situation like that, by its very nature, indicates that you recognise that you've got a situation where you alone can't fix it and you need God to fix it. In fact, I think if you don't have a situation in life where you need God for breakthrough. Maybe you're thinking, oh, stuff's going really well for me at the moment, and I don't feel actually, now you've mentioned it, I don't feel like my prayer life is particularly vibrant. If you don't feel like you've got a situation where you need God for breakthrough, I'd actually suggest you're not in quite the right place. Mm-hmm. And expanding on that further, I guess the nuance there is it's not like you have to go out and find yourself a difficult situation. I think it's more that you need to realise whatever your circumstances are at the moment, whether they're going good or going less good, you will have circumstances where you should need God for breakthrough. That is the way that he's designed our lives to work, which kind of leads into the words we've had this morning. So it's okay, it's okay to be pushed into prayer by the, the situations that God allows to happen to us in our lives. The challenge for us, though, for Nehemiah, kind of like drawing into this rebuild, return and rebuild project is, do we have the compassion to see that God's church, the body, is a cause worthy of praying for earnestly? Do we care that the walls need rebuilding? Do we even see that the walls need rebuilding? Because for Nehemiah, that situation that turns into prayer is that he hears a couple of things to pick from this. He hears that the remnant are in great trouble and great shame. The wall of Jerusalem has been broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And just, you know, just double tapping that quickly. The, the thing that he cares about, the thing that he's concerned about is the remnant. He cares about the people. So it's not like he cares about architecture. It's not like, how's the wall oh, Walls down, it's such a shame, we really love walls. He, he asks about how the remnant are doing, and Hananiah responds, This is how the remnant are doing. And then Nehemiah is grieved for 
the Reverend, he cares about people. He cares about what it means for the people of God. And the things that are happening to him, the, di the difficult situation is twofold. It's that they are in great trouble and that they are in great shame. He relates that to practicalities of what's happened. The walls are down. The walls have been knocked down. It's not that he really likes walls. The walls are down and therefore people are in trouble because there is opposition going on and they are vulnerable because the walls are down. There's no defence for them. And also they are in great shame because the gates are down. So in those times the gates were a bit more significant. They were when kings give, uh, gave decrees where important governmental societal business took place. That can't happen. So the people are in great shame. They are unable to be led by So they are in great trouble and they are in great shame. His response in verse 4 is to sit down, to weep, to pray and to fast for days. And you know, the thing is, I think we can relate to situations, situations like that in our life, but that would be, there would be anyone who hasn't had a difficult situation where it hits you like a freight train. And actually, if you're a Christian, you, know, you might spend some time uh, responding in a different way first, but ultimately there's this, like, I, I, this, is, this, is, this is huge. This is huge. This is beyond my capacity to fix it. I need to go to the Lord um, in this. But I wonder how many times where we've had situations where that freight train wasn't hitting just us or our immediate circle, but was hitting the body or God's church. How many times have we responded to a difficult situation of the church and that's been a freight train situation that leads us into that prayer and to care about it enough to engage with it? And you know, I, I think it, this isn't a particularly stupid point in some ways. Sometimes I think that our hearts are hardest to bad news. You know, we know that everyone, you've got so much accessibility to the bad news that's going on in your phone, you hear it all the time, and it, it, it does, it desensitizes us to it. But actually, I, I, I think it makes our hearts heart towards it. But I think the excuses that the hardness of our heart proffers to hearing bad news, I think Nehemiah has those excuses as well. You know, so sometimes we say, oh, you know, I'm not around bad news, so I, didn't, I, I don't know what's going on in India. I didn't know, I didn't know that there was bad stuff. Is there bad stuff going on in the church? Are some people struggling in the church? I, I wasn't aware that there was bad stuff going on in the church. Nehemiah, he's, he's talking about the remnant. He doesn't live with the remnant. He lives a long way away, so he's not around them, but actually he is actively trying to find out what's happening with the remnant. He's putting himself in a place where he can find out if there's bad news. He's asking how are the remnant doing. Yeah, it's good. And similarly, I think sometimes like our hearts harden themselves to bad news by saying, that is, yeah, I get, oh, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that, that is bad news. I'm so sorry to hear that there are people in the church who are struggling, that is bad news. But you know what, I've got my stuff that I carry, I've got my stuff. You know, would be that that were something that hit me like a freight train, but the reality is I've got my own stuff. And trust me, I'm getting like a freight train over here, and I just don't have the, the care for it. And I, I'm saying this as someone who, you know, who recognises these uh, hard-hearted responses in himself. But Nehemiah had that excuse as well. He was, uh, he was a, a, a high-ranking official. Cupbearers weren't just people who, you know, they weren't waiters. They were high-ranking officials of influence. He was based in the citadel of Susa, which is where the emperors lived. He'd been born after the exile. You know, he had the excuse to say, I have my own stuff. Oh, that's so bad. Actually, I've been called to the workplace. So, like, this is where I'm responsibility. But he, he was soft towards that. So, I think there is a conviction and a challenge to think how do we respond to how the church is doing. This isn't, you know, this makes it sound my about to reveal some really bad news about the church. That's not what this is. This is about <laughs> revealing, like, do we have that half of the church to put ourselves in a place to care about it? And I guess the question that it raised for me when thinking about this is are all our prayers for ourselves? Or for our immediate circles. Do we ever have a period of fasting? I mean, do I ever have a period of fasting morning days? Full stop. Do I ever do that for you know for the wider body? Do I care about that body that much? Or is there space for compassion in our prayer life and in our hearts and our considerations? 
If we don't see that the walls are broken down, we will not be able to weep over them. Yeah. And if we don't weep over the walls, we'll never rebuild them. Which was quite my man Harris last time we preached this. Thank you. <laughs> so, we should consider the challenge of returning to a season of prayer for the rebuilding. We should be convicted to that. It's okay to be convicted by this. This is what the Bible does. But let me tell you that our prayer life shouldn't be premised on the fact that we should do it. You know, if your motivation for spiritual disciplines is that you should do it, that just leads you to legalism. But praise be to God, there is far more reason for us to be convinced to pray than there is for us to be challenged to pray. And what we're going to do now, we're just going to look at prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1, and I'm just going to draw out some of the topics he prays. And what I think, what I'm hoping this will do, what I pray for this will do, is it will just stir us up. Oh yeah, I've forgotten that element of prayer. Oh yeah, that element of prayer is so good. And then we can look to fold those in as well. So uh, let us do that. One of the things that I see that uh, uh, Nehemiah prays in his prayer of chapter 1. The first one is Nehemiah prayer's theology. Theology is such a good thing to pray. What we mean by that? Theology is you know, knowing what God is like, knowing about God, knowing the things of God, knowing how we relate to God. I, I think this was um, a theologian, Andrew Wilson, but I can actually then go back and find the tweet. tweet is, uh, prayer is the application of theology. Prayer is the application of theology. And what that means is, it's like if you find something that you know to be true of the Lord, you know, spoiler alert, one of the ways to do that would be to read the Word because we know that that is true, that is the Word of God. If you, if you find a truth about God, praying that applies it to us. You might read, oh, it says in the Bible here, but I don't have to be anxious. But actually, in all situations, by thanksgiving and prayer supplications, I present my request before Lord, and the peace that passes all understanding will guard my heart. I think that's great. How do I, so when, you know, is there a button on that? How do I get this kind of thing? Prayer applies that to your situation. I need that. I need that. Now, God, I don't know. I don't really understand what that means. But you say not to be anxious. That sounds like a command to me. And then you tell me that the peace that passes all understanding, that shalom, will guard my heart. It applies that to our lives. And he does this. Now, my praise theology, he starts by, by thinking about who is he praying to? Lord God in heaven. You know how it's... Talked last week about worship. We all worship someone. It's just a case of who do we choose to worship. We all pray to someone as well. We're all asking those questions. Oh, would someone get me out of this mess kind of thing? And this is Andrew Wilson again saying, worry is what happens when you pray to yourself. Oh, I've got this messy situation. Steve and Jeldon, we fix it. I don't know how to fix it. God in heaven. Then my praise to the God of heaven. Remind yourself who you are able to speak to here, who it is we're addressing for ourselves in the church. You come in with a problem. Is it a difficult situation that's forcing you into prayer, pushing you into prayer? Maybe it's one about provision. God, I don't have enough. Like, I can't pay my bills. Address them, Jehovah Jireh. That's one of the names of God. That's who he is. God, our provider. God, I don't have enough. But you are Jehovah Jireh, our provider. Maybe you're coming on well. Remember that he is Jehovah Rapha, healer. God, you can heal me. Are you isolated? Remember that he is the God who is present. Pray the names of God. Remember who it is that we are praying to. Lord God in heaven. Nehemiah goes on to say, Lord God in heaven, who is great and awesome. Now, great and awesome are just words that have been stolen in our vernacular. Aren't they? Like, where awesome means, like, at best, like, okay. Are you doing okay? Yeah, I'm awesome. Or, like, if you're British, it probably means I'm actually disappointed. But in God, we remember that He is great. He is much. He is more. He is greatest. He is greater. He is mighty. He is faithful one. He is healer. He is provider. He is present. He is peace. He's bigger than our problems. He is he who keeps his covenant, Nehemiah goes on to say. If we are coming to him with a situation, if it's a bad situation, pushing us into prayer, 
Chances are that's because someone or something has broken its covenant with us. We expect that. That's why we have prenuptials or insurance or warranty. We expect the people. We see that time and time again. Covenant is broken with us. The God of heaven is a promise keeper. Mm. Apply that theology. Have you found a Bible verse that speaks hope into your situation? God, it says here, those who trust in the Lord will not be shaken. That is true. If you trust in him, you will not be shaken. What does that mean? What are you being shaken by? You will not be shaken if you trust in God. He is a promise keeper. Prayer because it's true. His promises are yes and amen. And then the last thing on theology, Nehemiah, this is, this is an interesting one. Nehemiah, this is Nehemiah to God. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. <laughs> Why does Nehemiah say that? Does he need to contend for God's interest? Is it like, God, just, just over here, mate? Like, is it, you know, dial up internet? Come on, get off the line, I'm trying to speak to you. But like, no, he's, we are able to approach the throne of grace with confidence. Jesus is interceding on our behalf at all times on the right hand of the Father. There's no worry about it. But actually, praying theology humbles us. It helps us to realise what is what. It's us who need to be attentive, with eyes open, with ears open. It's us who need to have our stiff necks and our hard hearts softened down to him. In remembering the truth of God's accessibility to us, we are left in awe. And when you position yourself before God, recognising how humble you are and how, how humble we are, and how great and awesome and promise-keeping he is, you are positioning yourself to see miracles, to see your prayers answered. So pray theology. Number two, he prays for the church. Now I hope this prays up for a st- uh, stirs up for us the, the desire and the tool in maybe to pray in all situations. But I have made this point. I think there's a seasonal call to return and rebuild patterns of church prayer. Nehemiah prays that too. He says, the prayer of your servant, Nehemiah, that I, Nehemiah, now pray before you, God in heaven, day and night, day and night, for the people of Israel, your servants. Prayer helps us have that compassion for other people and for the church. You might feel challenged by Nehemiah's response. Yeah, that's a good point. Actually, I don't, I don't feel like the business of the church hits me like a freight train. I don't feel like I carry that. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it work, but I always like that, but God would have to move mountains to make me that person who cares about the church and people in the church. No, if you want more compassion for others, pray for them. That's the direction that grace flows in when it comes to compassion. Praying for others breeds compassion for them. Praying for the church breeds desire for unity and a desperation for it. If you're one of those people who think you don't feel like you don't have a situation in your life you're contending for with God and need breakthrough, ask other people in church because there are people in church who have things that they need to God and that they've recognised and need to breakthrough. Prayer breeds compassion. Number three, my favourite, confession. Confession is such an underrated part of prayer, and it is so good. Okay, try this on for a second. You know, think about, do I pray? Do I, do I confess my very often? Do I pray repentance very often? Try this one on as a prayer. Have, have I ever prayed for this? It says, Nehemiah, I confess the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Now, I do confess, but how often do I pray for my family? God, forgive my family. <laughs> how often do I pray? For the wider body, God forgive us. Forgive us. Forgive, forgive God first. Forgive your wider church where we have sinned against you. Yeah. It is such an important part of prayer. Now Nehemiah's prayer here, you know, you might pick this up by the, the overarching story. The prayer here of Nehemiah ultimately he's going to ask God for some stuff to do with that bad news, the testing situation that the Roman are facing. But what's interesting is long before he gets to that point of asking God, he's confessing sins. And the reason is he understands it. He gets it. It's not that he thinks like, 
God has done bad things to us because we've been bad, and therefore I need to clear that. He, he recognises that, you know, that cause and effect element of sin. He recognises, God, I'm, we are in this desperate situation. God, we need your hands in this situation. But also I recognise the part that we have played to get us into that situation. And for that, I am truly sorry. It's not that God needs, you know, to try hard, I think is really important here. It's not, it's not that God needs our confession like a transaction to his covenant. We live in, praise God, a much greater covenant. It's not like God's like, I've got so much mercy for you guys, but I, I'm just about to have you in a situation when I've checked and you've got a bit outstanding. You're going to need to repent of that. Jesus has paid our bills. Amen. Okay, so we are free from that. Yeah. But confession and repentance, do you know this? Do you know that confession and repentance is for your good? Do you know that it is good for you? I had this um, uh, this simple thought pattern in my life last year. I've had more sins since then. Um, but I had, when, I, when I was praying about it, and it was something I thought I was in control of. I knew that there were, I knew that there was an experiment to it, but I thought I was in control of it. And I knew it wasn't quite right, and I prayed. And I just saw this picture of like a scroll in my heart, and the scroll was turning inwards. And as the scroll turned in, it pulls more of the scroll into it. The handle pulls like more of the paper of the scroll. And I immediately knew that was about that area of my life. And I felt like what God was saying is like, whilst you've got this thing in the dark, this sin inside you, actually the accuser uses that ability to pull more and more stuff into the dark. Mm. And that's what sin is like. Unconfessed sin, undealt with sin in your life, it pulls more and more. That's what the accuser does. You know, I can go, another sin that I had. I was confessing, confessing another sin last week. And I realised, I knew it was an area of sin that I needed to talk to God about. But actually, when I started confessing, I realised what the things I'd done wrong in that second word. And how much I've been hearing the accuser's voice as well. Yeah. I knew that I needed to confess about it. But actually, over time, I began to feel like you are, you are a bad and sick person in that whole area. And chronic, if you're bad there, you might be bad everywhere else. And I said, like, no, I need to confess. I did have things to confess. But when I started confessing specifics about to God, I realised, I'm, sure, I'm not sure that I would say that I'm a bad and sick person. And then you're like, well, whose voice is that? Yeah. That's the voice of the accuser. And so, you know, so confession actually can allow us to identify what, what we've done wrong, what we need to confess. And can kind of like help us to recognise that hounding voice of the enemy that is masquerading as a humble and holy self-criticism. So it's good for us. Confession and repentance bring freedom and they remind us of the work of Jesus on the cross. You know, the Old Testament, the, the prophets and the Lord point to Jesus. In verse 9, Nehemiah, when he's reminding God of the covenant that he has said to them, he says, God, you said if you return to me and keep my commandments, though you're in the utmost parts of heaven, from there I will gather you in. Well, that is, that's the good news. That points to that merciful good news story and acts. We have repent, turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, so that uh, times of refreshing may come from God. That's, that's what Jesus preached, isn't it? It's repent and believe. Mm. Repent, be refreshed, be restored, rebuild and believe. The Greek, pistis and metanoia, repent is, pistis is you're heading in one direction, you turn back from that direction, and then believe, and so you walk forwards, and times of refreshing from God come upon you. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance, and it's for freedom that he has set us free. So confession, such a part of prayer. Next one, this one's a short one. Remembering what God has done could be a long one. Uh, now, my praise, remember the word that you command your servant God, and then he reminds God of that word. And again, why does he do that? It's not because God needs reminding. Oh, yeah, I've forgotten about the covenant. Thanks for that, Nehemiah. But sometimes we do. Nehemiah is facing the future, encouraged by the past. He reminds himself what God has done, what God has done for his people who he has redeemed by his strength and his mighty hand. How that is God gives us faith and uplift for when we pray for each other. If you pray for someone in church, 
you know, sometimes God puts someone on your heart and you'll pray, God, I'm so desperate for breakthrough for this person. And there's almost a degree to which you'll pray, God, would you, God, I pray that you'd be as desperate as I am right now for this person. He's way more desperate. He is way more desperate. He's redeemed that person by his strength, by his mighty power, by his arm. We should be encouraged remembering that he sent his son to die on a cross for them and that he will not let go of the least of his people. Remember what God has done. And the final part of his prayer, supplication, asking God for stuff. And the reason it's the final part of prayer, but I'm going through the final part, is because it's the final part of his prayer. And you might think, you know, it's funny, sometimes there's almost this like, temptation to believe, like, well, I'm glad supplication is in there, but it's, it's this temptation to, uh, to believe that like, asking stuff of God is ungodly. Oh, you know, I heard this person, he did like this four-day fast and mourn, and he didn't ask God anything. And I bet God loved him so much at the end of it because he didn't ask. You know, it's not like you're calling, it's not like you're calling your parent. And I said, like, oh, Steve's calling me. Like, oh, it's great to Okay, Steve wants money. That's why he calls me. God, God has got so much grace. He's got so much mercy. He's got so much for you. And actually, the fact that he commands us asks to pray, it's kind of him asking us to ask him things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not bad. In Ezra and Nehemiah alone, they ask uh, for strengthening of hands, for opposition, for protection. The Bible gives examples of supplication for the sick, for the possessed, for missionaries, for our enemies, for our daily needs, for the things of God. It is good to ask. We're called to do that. Okay? The way Jesus taught us to pray, he taught, he taught us to ask. So asking is a good thing. And it's not also that the, that the order of the prayer is like a law or a formula. You might, you know, if you were like rapidly scribbling away. And God, he says, I can ask God of things, but first of all, I have to do adoration and confession and thanksgiving and identity and all that stuff. No, it's, it's that, that's not the key thing here. But the, the key thing to note is look how much more powerful Nehemiah's supplication is when it's prayed on the back of theology, yeah. thanksgiving, identity, and confession. Yes. And Nehemiah 2, four months on from Nehemiah 1, he's, he's, in, he's in the presence of the king Artaxerxes, and he's just this famous little arrow prayer. No, there's our prayer when you're in the middle of something. He starts a conversation with Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes says, What's wrong with you? He says, Ah, oh, the remnant are really struggling. And Artaxerxes says, What do you want? What do you want? And he says, I pray to the God of heaven and earth. And I'm assuming what he didn't do is hold on a second, Artaxerxes. He, he just quickly, God helped me in this situation, and then he speaks to him as well. Yeah. But the context of that arrow prayer of Nehemiah was a four month long period where he'd been fasting, mourning, and positioning himself before God and praying truth to build his faith. And guys, you will fire arrows much more straight and true if you spent four months learning how to use a bow. Very good. And what does Nehemiah ask? Well, he asks for things of God, like he asks three things. Give success to a servant and grant him favour in the sight of this man. Give success to a servant. God grants victory. The victory belongs to the Lord. Nehemiah overcomes great odds with supernatural support to see the wall rebuilt. Number two, grant him favour. He changes hearts. God is in the business of changing hearts. If you're in this room today, it's because God has in some way changed your hearts. It's supernatural that we're gathering together to praise God. God, God changes hearts. He changes the heart of Artaxerxes, who only earlier in Ezra 4 had commanded a cessation of the rebuilding, and his heart has changed. God changes hearts. And number three, he wants the world to see in the sight of this man, the most powerful man in the known world at that time. This wasn't a silent prayer request for that risk. It's costly. Requires faith in God and radical obedience, but as he saw it and responded, the known world would have seen it and responded, just as the whole world is going to see and have to respond when Jesus comes back. Are these not the things we should be praying for? Give success to a servant. Let's see hearts change and let's see the world see. 
So I hope uh, that we might feel stirred to pray in this season, both challenged to be a body that prays for one another and for the church and for the churches. But, oh God, I hope that we might be convinced of your goodness and your grace and allowing us access to you in a way that is intimate and powerful and brings change. Yeah. But what does, uh, what does returning to and rebuilding rhythms of prayer look, for us like, look like for us in this season, God, first? Well, it means that we have to start somewhere. If we want prayer everywhere, if we want effective arrow prayers, then we have to do that other prayer as well. We have to start somewhere. Now, these aren't, these aren't silver bullets, this new rhythm of prayer that we're looking to do. But if we don't try and build this unhurried context of prayer for the pursuit of God, our supplications will be shallow and immature, lacking in faith and truth and godliness. And our arrows will be wayward and few. So for June, more details of this will be forthcoming. But we're going to start two new rhythms of prayer. June is very closely upon us, in case you haven't realised next month. Uh, so every first Wednesday um, of the month, which is where most of us small groups meet, we're going to have an all-church prayer. I'll probably start on Zoom, but let's see where restrictions take us with that. And that'll be in the evening. And then the other one is, uh, we've just started doing this as a leadership very, very recently. Uh, every Friday morning, we're meeting for a weekly prayer between 7 and 7.30 on Zoom. It's just like a really like uh, low power in terms of bright lights and, and music and stuff. High power in terms of faith building bricklaying for that wall building moment as well. We would love people to join us for that. Even if you can just come for a bit of that in your pyjamas whilst you make your tea. I'd say pull up the tagline is going to be pour out your coffee whilst he pours out his grace. But we're working on that so just not on YouTube. <laughs> not doing anything on YouTube right now. Um, what we want to do, you know these aren't these aren't silver bullets, but what we want to do is we want to grow our prayer muscles and through them bring glory to God. We want to switch back into the maze power up the light all the way through the building. And rebuilding rhythms of prayer, of course, requires considerations in line with all the other elements of return and rebuild. And if you want to come back, this is moving um, into land and, and we're going to break bread in a second. But yeah, we, have, we, have to, we want to think about this season we're in as, as we try and rebuild these rhythms of prayers. We need to firstly ensure that we don't move back to Jerusalem, only to stick to ways we picked up in Babylon. You know, it might be the case for, you know, for the last year for you, lockdown for you, it was really hard spiritually. You're actually, you know, almost pretty much gave up on prayer. And we want to leave that behind in Babylon and believe. It's not, it's not a judgment on you if that is you, but we want to return to Jerusalem and just see what it's like when we rebuild it together. It might be that your prayer life is really good, but actually it's become quite isolated. I'm just praying for myself. I feel like I've got my faith and I almost, you know, almost question is, do you need church like as part of that? And we want to bring that back in as well. God, God loves that secret place. Prayer that we build with him, he loves it, he honors it, and he wants to grow, but he also calls us to pray with and for the saints yeah. as well. And similarly, we trust that God has presided over this time, of course, as with all times, we believe that he teaches us stuff in us. And we want to bring into our rhythms things that we learn in exile, things that he's teaching us in this season. Maybe you found a deeper longing has built up in you in prayer over the last year, or there's been more desperation for his word and seems we've had way more prophetic words since we've come back. And we freaking love that, although you've been praying big prayers. Bring that back. We want. We believe that God is telling us to rebuild in the same way as before. He says that God does nothing in Amos. He says God does nothing in that first telling his people the prophets. We want to. We want prayer, Him and through prayer to lead the way that we rebuild. But equally, if you are just at a point where you need rebuilding, there is space, love, and grace for all in the community that prays. If we can be encouraged, church, challenged, and convinced. Prayer as I hope we can by the story of Ezra now my returning and rebuilding from exile. 
How much more then can we be encouraged by Jesus whom the whole Old Testament points towards? Who woke up early to pray, taught us to pray, made us away to the Father to pray, and whose return to the Father was followed by the sending of the Spirit who helps us as we pray whilst he intercedes mm. on our behalf. Jesus who wept over Jerusalem and cares for the lost, pursues the lost, whose compassion, whose response far outstripped that of Nehemiah's when he heard of the hard, hard times of the church, his compassion for the people of God, which would be as extensive to him, sacrificing his body as a temple, to be knocked down by his crucifixion, and to be rebuilt in three days by his resurrection. So we turn to him now in prayerful observation of the ordinance which he left us on the night that he was betrayed.